0: As you hear sounds coming up in your head, thoughts, you simply listen to them as part of the general noise going on, just as you would be listening to the sound of my voice, or just as you would be listening to cars going by, or to birds chattering outside the window. So look at your own thoughts as just noises. This is Billy Hansen and welcome back to Sauce Talk, a podcast about sports and the mind and trying to live well in general. This will be the last section that I play from my audiobook on the podcast. This is chapter 24, the second to last chapter, and it comes after my own athletic story. And it's really just about everything. It's about all the ideas I have about playing sports and how that relates to living a good life from youth sports and my attitudes towards youth sports that might be useful to parents and coaches. It's about finding a good fit in college and what you should look for at the college level. It's about coaching and how much respect I have for good coaches and the kind of sacrifices they make for influencing young people. It's about meditation and mental training and courage and bravery and vulnerability and really just everything i have to say about sports and how they relate to life in general so i hope you enjoy chapter 24 of harder than i thought easier than i feared my new book with the subtitle sports anxiety and the power of meditation Chapter 24 Insights 1. In 2018, Norway's 39 medals broke America's record for the most medals ever won in a Winter Olympics. While it's logical to expect an Arctic country to produce great skaters and skiers, Norway also develops world class warm weather athletes like Ada Edeberg, one of the world's best female soccer players, and Anders Moll, possibly the world's best beach volleyball player. How can Norway? with a population of just over five million, the same as Minnesota, outperformed the historically athletic powerhouses of the US, Russia, and China. Journalist and researcher Tom Ferry has traveled the world studying how various countries and cultures develop athletes. And he claims that of all the systems he's seen, Norway's is the best and that their strategy is simple. They try to make sure children love sports at an early age. Norway has a unique youth sports bill of rights that clearly defines a philosophy for athletic development. For girls and boys from age six to 12 years old, the focus is on making sports enjoyable. Gifted young athletes get no more attention than anyone else. The eventual result is that many of Norway's Olympic champions were in the middle of the pack at age 10. This is in stark contrast to the tracking that occurs in America, where beginning at age six, the biggest and most talented athletes usually begin to receive better coaching and more attention than their smaller, less gifted peers. Tori Overbow, the head of Norway's Olympic training program, thinks that the Norwegian approach is not only healthier for children, but is the primary reason for the country's Olympic success. Though Norway's conduct likely seems soft and overly compassionate to many Americans, it consistently produces outstanding athletes. Overbow himself is highly competitive, and his goal is to dominate the rest of the world in the Olympic games, quote, There is no collision between our ambition to be number one at the Olympic Winter Games and treating kids well. It's the same thing. When kids get emotionally prepared to have sport as their own project and ambition, then we start to rank them and work with them in a totally different way. My main ambition here is to produce a high-performance culture that can beat the rest of the world. End quote. Two. After Michael Jordan won his sixth championship, he was playing the piano and smoking a cigar while celebrating with his teammates. A reporter shouted at him, asking if he was coming back for another run at it. His response, quote, it's the moment, stay in the moment. That's that Zen Buddhism shit. This is the moment, End quote. Powerful incentives make young Americans want to succeed as athletes. Prominent among them is the hope of earning an athletic scholarship, which can save an athlete and her family tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars. The tiny percentage of athletes that go on from college to compete professionally in the major American sports earn extreme wealth. Beyond financial rewards, the social status that the best athletes enjoy is intoxicating for young minds to imagine. Girls and boys fantasize about becoming campus celebrities, scoring winning goals or touchdowns, and appearing on TV in front of millions of viewers. Parents have similar dreams about their sons and daughters. The inevitable result is a hyper-competitive environment where promising young athletes and their families look towards future goals at the expense of the present. As young promising athletes grow up, the sense of play is often replaced by striving for status and aiming at future goals. Growing up, I was always tempted to view each season as a stepping stone to some later greater end. The goal of a D1 scholarship motivated me to train hard, but it also hovered over each game, practice, and season like a storm cloud. When I reflect on my athletic career, I realize that the joy and triumph I experienced when we won a district little league championship was no less real or significant than winning a state championship in high school or a big game in college. I wish that in my youth and adolescence, I'd allowed myself to relax and enjoy my good fortune as an athlete, rather than fixating on vague future goals. When we focus too much on something other than the present, we diminish the value and beauty of sports. Three, if I'm blessed with children of my own and they become athletes, I'll be careful not to put too much stress on them, physical or mental. I'll resist the pressures to ship my children to the most expensive and prestigious camps and showcases and to the prominent AAU circuits. Many young gifted athletes are burning out due to the extreme schedules they try to maintain. In recent years, there's been a substantial increase in player injuries between age 18 and 22. Dr. Marcus Elliott, a founder of P3 Applied Sports Science Lab, a training center specializing in athlete assessment, drew this conclusion when asked about modern youth basketball. Quote, what they put their bodies through is so rigorous, it's so extreme, and a lot of them don't make it out the other side. End quote. He goes so far as to call those who make it through without an injury survivors. Kobe Bryant was a vocal critic of youth basketball and AAU culture throughout his career, He didn't think he could have lasted 20 years in the NBA if he'd taken on the modern youth schedule. He played one game every two weeks until he was 15 years old. Before that, he shot and practiced ball handling every day, but not long enough for it to feel like work. Instead of playing in tournaments weekend after weekend, most of his work was on skill development and strength training. LeBron James told Yahoo Sports that he regularly holds his children out of AAU games because he understands that their schedules are too demanding, jeopardizing young athletes' futures. I remember waking up on Sunday mornings after playing four AAU games on a Saturday, feeling nearly crippled with stiffness and soreness. In an interview about modern youth basketball, Wally Blaze, a Chicago Bulls athletic trainer from 1993 to 2000, revealed this about the man considered by many to be the greatest basketball player ever. Quote, when the season ended, Michael Jordan left and played golf and didn't pick up a basketball again until probably a little bit before training camp in September. He might have played pickup ball with some friends, but he wasn't working eight hours a day at some gym with some shooting coach. end quote. Aside from the physical risks, a child who's overworked in adolescence will be at risk of mental burnout. I think sports can be a valuable activity for young people, and those who want to play in college need to make sacrifices but finding some balance in life will set up a young athlete for a more sustainable and successful future. Four, beyond mental training and improved life habits, a crucial variable in my recovery was the environment created by my coaches, Bergeson, Kaufman, Snyder, Long, and Tripp. Like teachers, coaches have the power to transform young people's lives. The Netflix series, Last Chance U, documents the East LA Community College basketball team which is made up of at-risk young athletes who, through basketball, are given a chance to earn a degree and make something of themselves. I wonder how many people positively impact our society as much as coaches like John Mosley. I have the utmost respect and admiration for competent coaches who offer leadership and influence to young people who desperately need it. Every day, my teammates and I showed up at the gym and found determined, trustworthy coaches who knew the game well. I was motivated to give my best effort every day. In poorly run athletic programs, turmoil between players and coaches is inevitable. Players who aren't motivated cut corners wherever and whenever they can. Unhappy players and coaches blame each other and feel mutually disconnected from a collective goal. In healthy programs, neither coaches nor players tolerate unproductive or irresponsible behavior because every individual feels a responsibility to the team A large majority of programs fall somewhere between these extremes. If I was going through the recruiting process again today, I'd be most concerned with finding a good coach and a good program, and I'd care much less about the level or perceived status of the school I chose. Time spent in any noxious environment can lead to serious problems that reach far beyond the court or the field. Mental health issues, alcoholism, frustration that leads to dropping out of school. Many of us are youthfully overconfident, Certain that we aren't influenced by those around us, but we all adapt to our environment to some extent, and it's easier to paddle with the current than against it. 5. Athletes should ask themselves these questions. What am I especially good at? What does this team need that nobody else is contributing? Those who can answer these questions will likely achieve increased success and find themselves enjoying their sport as a consequence. I should have known that my unique talent was spacing the floor and knocking down shots. Year after year, driving to the basket and trying to finish around the rim was diminishing my stock as a player. My coaches told me after the season that I initially earned a spot in the rotation because of how hard I worked at practice every day and because I consistently brought energy and toughness to the court. I played hard, even when I didn't feel like it. I fought through pain and drills and scrimmages, and I found time to get extra work outside of practice despite my heavy course load. Had I not done these things, I never would have been given the opportunity to find my shooting confidence in games. On any team and in any given sport, a small percentage of players get most of the attention and praise. This is especially true in NBA basketball, where a few players command almost all the national attention. And this is what leads many young people to want to play like the exceptionally skilled stars. But for almost everybody, their efforts are counterproductive. Former Oklahoma City Thunder forward, Nick Collison's article, how to survive in the NBA when you're not a superstar, clarifies a rational strategy. He writes, quote, the goal is to try to make it very difficult for your team to replace you so that they have to do what it takes to keep you around. That's how a player creates value for himself, end quote. In other words, understand what you can do on the court or the field and do it very well. Certain skills, scoring, playmaking, home run hitting, closing out a baseball game in the bottom of the ninth inning, catching long touchdown passes, capture the attention of fans, while other actions crucial for a team's success never show up on a highlight reel. Collison again, quote, If you're a bench guy and you start to take more shots, to take your scoring average from six points a game up to eight points a game, not many people are going to notice. You are doing the same things, just in a more inefficient way. On the other hand, if you average only five points a game, but defensively you can blow up every pick and roll and take that option away from the opponent, you're going to be able to play for a long time and make a lot of money over your career." End quote. Understanding what you can do that needs to be done and doing it well makes you valuable. Collison played 15 years in the NBA with Seattle and Oklahoma City, and in 2019 had his jersey retired at the arena. Over the course of his career, he averaged six points and five rebounds in 20 minutes per game, More importantly, he brought exceptional toughness and energy to the court. His example applies to every level of team athletics. Six, when things got really hard, I desperately wanted to quit. If I did, I'd never have to see my coach again or step into the gym I hated. I saw other students on campus who looked very happy to be living without pressure to perform, but I'm thankful that my family encouraged me to stick it out. Practically, I just couldn't justify giving up a scholarship and losing credits. At the time, I thought that basketball was causing my misery. Basketball was bad. We struggled as a team, and we had a poor team culture. But I now realize that a lot of my problems were my own. It was like I was in a super messy room with boxes piled up everywhere, cobwebs, old clothes and magazines scattered around, and mice running through the junk. The temptation is to pour gasoline everywhere burn it all down and walk away. Just escape the problem and move on. As a player and a coach, and since then in my professional career, I've seen many people do this. When things get tough, they quit and walk away. Sticking around means rummaging through the boxes, contending with all the mold and grime, and slowly and painfully sorting everything out. And sorting the situation out usually means you have to sort yourself out too. Those who run from difficult times tend to continually find themselves in the same conditions again and again. The same dynamic applies to a job, in a creative project or discipline, and it might be especially true in intimate relationships. When things get hard, it's easy to imagine that a new and better partner will make things better. In sports, it's a new coach or a new team that promises better days. Sometimes it is wise to transfer from a team, leave a job or relationship, or give up on a project. But those who never stick around to work through their difficulties stay at the surface and never resolve their issues with a team, a job, or a partner. One of my friends quit the team after his sophomore season. He was a gifted player with prospects to play a lot and play well in the years to come, but he wanted to be just a student and enjoy his life. I envied him when he left. Midway through the following season, he visited us and came to a house party near campus. He told me he wished he hadn't quit, and that he hoped to find another team the following year. I tried to console him by telling him, yeah, but don't forget how hard basketball is. He replied, I remember, but life without basketball is fucking hard too. Seven, the schedules that student athletes maintain often lead to envy of non-athletes on campus. I was jealous of students who could stay up all night doing homework without suffering any consequences the following day. Instead of writing a paper on a sunny afternoon, or going to the gym to get in some shooting between classes. They could either take a nap under a tree or throw a frisbee on the quad. When I forced myself to bed at 10 o'clock Friday night, I wondered what it might be like to go out and party instead with no practice scheduled for the morning. I envied students who could go on backpacking trips and enjoy the beauty of Colorado while I was confined in the stuffy gym. Sometimes my teammates and I felt this envy collectively When we traveled by bus from one unremarkable town in South Dakota to another on a Friday night after a game, we'd scroll our social media apps and see our classmates at parties and music festivals or skiing and snowboarding. Athletes with strong feelings for girls on campus often worry about leaving town for road games while the girls they like are out somewhere without them. This produced the red shirt spy phenomenon when traveling players asked the red shirts back home to go to parties and report back if the girls they care about are dancing or hooking up with other guys. Traveling female athletes use the same tactic. Some athletes do their best to function in many worlds, as a team member, a committed student, a member of the drugs and party culture, an expert video gamer, and so on. But responsible team members can't realistically find their pleasures in the relative freedom that non-athletes enjoy. Sacrifice is a large part of what makes the athletic experience unique. Shared struggles lead to deep bonds and friendships, and athletes tend to forget that non-athletes who attend sporting events look at those who compete with envy, wondering what it would be like to wear the uniform and go to battle in front of a crowd. The grass doesn't always look greener, but it often does. Eight, it's important to understand the difference between self-discipline and self-suppression. Self-suppression is the act of concealing your true nature And what you really want to do in life in order to quote unquote get along self-discipline is letting your highest desires rule over lower desires keeping the central core of your purpose firmly in mind and sacrificing short-term desires for its benefit athletics especially in college are so demanding that it makes little sense to try to fulfill your commitment unless it's really what you want to do during my senior year my purpose was basketball meditation academics and my relationships with my best friend and my new girlfriend. As I sacrificed nearly everything else for those commitments, I felt a sense of relief. Doing less actually led to more enjoyment and fulfillment. Nine, quote, heroes are heroes because they are heroic in behavior, not because they won or lost. Nassim Taleb. After failing to lead the Cavaliers to a championship, LeBron James joined Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh on the Miami Heat and made the NBA Finals in their first season together. LeBron had a dismal series, scoring only eight points in a crucial game four loss. Miami eventually lost in six games to the underdog Mavericks. In the following season, he found himself on the brink of another failure, down 3-2 to the Boston Celtics before game six on the road. In many of his previous playoff failings, he would played cowardly, often looking weirdly detached, and seemed to quit in moments of deep adversity. But in this game, despite his fears and insecurities about his playoff reputation, he played with a stone cold stoic demeanor and determination that neither his fans nor detractors had seen before, scored 45 points, led his team to victory, and ultimately won his first NBA title. In fact, even if he'd lost that game or lost the series, the way he played was unarguably courageous. The fear he felt, and the way he showed up despite the fear made it courageous. I think many modern people have become confused about what it actually means to be courageous. For most of my playing career, I thought being afraid was a bad thing. I thought courage was the absence of fear and that I was courageous only when I felt confident and relaxed, but I was mistaken. If LeBron James showed up somewhere to play high school basketball next year, his performance would be dominant, but not courageous. As a senior, I finally understood this. Before games, I felt afraid of failing, anxious that I'd lose my spot in the starting lineup or let my teammates and coaches down. I finally recognized that my fear wasn't a shortcoming, but rather something that gave me an opportunity to show courage. I became able to play freely and passionately despite my fears. My mental training helped me become more comfortable with not knowing what was going to happen next. What I learned was that I didn't have to have control over the outcome in order to be okay. Athletes and everyone else should understand that the goal isn't to get rid of anxiety or fear, but to deal with it skillfully. Athletes who feel no nervousness before a big game are probably not in the right mindset for competition. Playing sports or doing anything that involves taking risks comes with uncomfortable feelings of uncertainty. If we never felt this, we'd never truly feel alive. It's the uncertainty and the chance for success or failure that makes sports so captivating. Without fear, anxiety, insecurity, or self-doubt, there would be no opportunity to be courageous. 10, quote, every virtue carried to an extreme degenerates into folly or positive vice. An applicable quote misattributed to Aristotle. What does it mean to be a good teammate and buy into the program? It's not as simple as always sacrificing yourself for the collective and always maintaining goodwill with teammates. It's good to get along with teammates, but not to such a degree that you sacrifice your presence on the court. Good coaches love players who sacrifice for the collective, but not players who kiss their asses and try to gain favor by barking out exactly what they want to hear. The best players maintain some individuality, and rather than repressing their darker impulses so they can get along, they channel them into something productive. Many athletes find themselves relating to their teammates by outwardly keeping the peace and backing down from any conflict while they internally wish failure upon their friends. These athletes can trick themselves into thinking that their lack of friction between teammates and coaches is somehow virtuous, even though their inward intentions are unhealthy. Part of my development as both a player and a person was learning to stand up for myself, to fight for more playing time, And greater status within the team, to take no shit from teammates and opponents, and to say what I thought. And at the same time, I truly wanted my teammates and friends to be happy on the inside, even the friends I sometimes fought with at practice. I wasn't perfect at this, and I'm still not, but that's the direction I'm trying to move in. For people pleasers who like to keep the peace, this is an indispensable form of development. 11. If I could start my college athletic career over, I'd diversify my identity, understanding that interests and pursuits outside of sports can actually enhance your athletic career. I'd be more rational about my relationship with drugs and partying. I'd sometimes go out and drink with my friends, but I wouldn't abuse alcohol weekend after weekend. I'd smoke pot only on occasion, and only if I wasn't subject to random tests. I wouldn't rely on alcohol or pot to fall asleep, and I'd learn to approach girls without getting drunk first. I'd abstain from cigarettes, cocaine, and Adderall. I'd spend much less time on my phone, and during study times, I'd keep my phone off and out of sight. I'd focus on sustainability and mental clarity, understanding that real improvements come from making many small, correct decisions over and over again. I'd focus on my habits instead of on goals, and I'd simplify my life and be okay missing out on things that my friends were doing. Each off-season, I'd take an extended break from my sport and try to do something out of my comfort zone, backpacking, traveling to a different culture, or attending a meditation retreat. I understand that a yearly mental and physical reset is essential. Upon return, I'd train hard for the upcoming season and make sure I showed up to campus in great shape. I'd be consistent and focused in my training, and I'd favor shorter, crisper, more intense bursts than drawn out workouts. I'd focus on the basics of the game before attempting to develop flashy or complex skills. I'd be mindful during training, focusing on how my mind felt during reps in the weight room and on the court. I'd practice non-judgmental awareness and concentration rather than self-criticism and frustration. In competition, I'd understand that success requires taking risks and making myself vulnerable to failure. I'd try to stand up to my fears, understanding that shrinking from them only exaggerates them. I'd compete hard every day, I wouldn't shy away from conflict, and I'd bring serious energy to the court. I'd wish my teammates well and enjoy my time with them, realizing that jealousies and friction with my friends and teammates over girls, playing time, or success will eventually be seen as wastes of time and energy. And I'd protect my sleep and always make time for my daily, formal meditation practice. Twelve. The World War II novel, From Here to Eternity, was written by James Jones, who fought in the war, served time in an army stockade, and adapted his own experiences as he created his characters. Two major characters, Pruitt and Maggio, find themselves together in the Schofield Barracks Stockade in Hawaii, and each is punished with several days of solitary confinement in a dark, cramped, miserable place known as The Hole. These tough, rugged soldiers somehow discovered that the only way to stay sane and reduce suffering while doing time in the hole was to focus on their breathing. Following and counting their breaths kept prisoners' minds from degenerating into fear and dread. Fictional evidence like this, based on real experience and portrayed believably, does as much as reading about a new brain scan to convince me that meditation works. I encourage athletes and coaches to give the practice of meditation a serious try and then decide whether or not it's helpful. I don't encourage athletes who connect with the practice to view it as a panacea that will solve all of life's problems or to use the practice as a way to retreat from sports and life. But I know that meditation can become an integral part of both a successful playing career and a good life. 13. Like many young athletes, I'd misunderstood why competition matters because I became addicted to the buzz of winning at an early age. Whether it was math competitions in class, kickball on the playground, or monopoly with my family, I wanted to win. I was so competitive growing up that family members often told me to loosen up, but I feared that if I loosened up, I'd stop winning. At higher levels of basketball, my hyper-competitive attitude did more harm than good. Here's what Tim Galway writes in the Inner Game of Tennis, quote, it is when competition is thus used as a means of creating a self-image relative to others that the worst than a person tends to come out. Then the ordinary fears and frustrations become greatly exaggerated. If I am secretly afraid that playing badly or losing the match may be taken to mean that I am less of a man, naturally, I am going to be more upset with myself for missing shots. And of course, this very uptightness will make it more difficult for me to perform at my highest levels. There would be no problem with competition if one's self-image were not at stake. End quote. Later, when I struggled in basketball and finally discovered meditation practice and Eastern philosophy, I swung in the opposite direction and again misunderstood competition. I decided that competition was at odds with living well. In hindsight, I realized that my reaction was a defense mechanism meant to make what I was failing at unimportant. Galway again, quote, But whereas some of us get trapped in the compulsion to succeed, others take a rebellious stance. Pointing to the blatant cruelties and limitations involved in a cultural pattern which tends to value only the winner and ignore even the positive qualities of the mediocre, they vehemently criticize competition. Among the most vocal are youth who have suffered under competitive pressures imposed on them by parents or society. Teaching these young people, I often observe in them a desire to fail. They seem to seek failure by making no effort to win or achieve success. They go on strike, as it were. End quote. As a college senior, I loved competition again, but with a new attitude that I at first had trouble understanding. I couldn't find the balance between cooperation and competition. Was competition really at odds with loving and connecting to others? Galway writes that he struggled with this paradox for much of his life before finally coming to understand that competition itself isn't the problem, but the way we tend to relate to it is, quote, Once one recognizes the value of having difficult obstacles to overcome, it is a simple matter to see the true benefit that can be gained from competitive sports. In tennis, who is it that provides a person with the obstacle he needs in order to experience his highest limits? His opponent, of course. Then is your opponent a friend or an enemy? He is a friend to the extent that he does his best to make things difficult for you. Only by playing the role of your enemy does he become your true friend. Only by competing with you does he in fact cooperate. In this use of competition, it is the duty of your opponent to create the greatest possible difficulties for you, just as it is yours to try to create obstacles for him. Only by doing this do you give each other the opportunity to find out what heights each can rise." It wasn't until the last game of my college career that I truly understood this. The gratitude I felt for the opposing team and for all of my struggles as a player stemmed from this realization. Alan Watts echoed this sentiment, pointing out that what looks like brutal competition at one level is actually cooperation at another. The various kinds of cells in our bodies are in brutal competition, without which we wouldn't survive. The animals and plants in the food chain engage in brutal competition, and this preserves the balance of the natural world. One of the beauties of sports is to teach young people to relate to competition in a healthy and honorable way. Understanding this can transform the way you view your sport. You can discover that the ultimate goal isn't to stack trophies in a case and see your name in record books, but rather to find levels of excellence and grace that wouldn't be possible without the obstacles and adversities that sports provide. When you accept this view, when the opponent's best player is injured and has to leave a big game, there will be part of you that's disappointed. Even though you'll now have an easier path to victory— you've been robbed of an opportunity to push yourself to new limits. You'll understand that respecting your opponent enables you to give full effort to the game. Galway again, quote, Today I play every point to win. It's simple and it's good. I don't worry about winning or losing the match, but whether or not I am making maximum effort during every point because I realize that that is where the true value lies. End quote. All right, thank you for listening to that chapter of my book. If you'd like to get the whole book, either on audiobook or ebook or print format, you can get the link in the show notes or visit billyhansen.net forward slash book. And if you know someone, a young athlete or a coach or the parent of a committed athlete, you should consider sending them the book and telling them about it. And I really appreciate that a lot can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you haven't yet, you should subscribe to my newsletter, which you can find at billyhansonnet forward slash newsletter. Also, if you purchased the book and you like it, I would appreciate a review on Amazon, which helps other people find it. Thank you so much for listening. Always feel free to reach out to me to say hi or to give feedback. And I will see you here for the next episode of Sauce Talk it's the sauce